Hi, this is Jay Baer of Convince and Convert Consulting, and welcome to the new Content Experience Show. Content Experience is the new content marketing. It's not only about reaching audiences where they are, but engaging them with personalized, useful content that matters. On the Content Experience Show, we share strategies, tips, and real-world examples of how leaders are taking their content marketing to the next level. Now, here's your hosts, Randy Frisch from Uberflip and Anna Harak from Convince and Convert Consulting. everybody. Welcome to the Content Experience Show podcast. I am here with the always amazing Randy Frisch from Uberflip, and I am Anna Harak from Convincing Convert. Now, today we have a very special guest on the show. We have Chris Savage, who is the CEO and co-founder of Wistia. And we spend a lot of time today talking about their most recent campaign that they did, which you'll hear all about. It's the 110 and 100 campaign. But I think a really great theme around today's show was actually risk. Now, Randy, I know Uberflip, you guys take risks all the time, and it pays off. Absolutely. You know, I've known Chris, who you'll hear from in a couple moments here. I've probably known him five or six years, and I remember going to their office at Wistia. Uh, You know, they were much smaller. I think they were something like 30 people on their team at the time. And there was a lot of different video solutions out in the market, probably more than we have today because there's been some consolidation. And I just got the vibe that these guys are doing it different, right? Like, you know, it was everything in terms of their approach to fundraising, to the way they had been executing on a product perspective, but even just the type of content that they were creating. And this campaign is one that got my team talking. Like, I, I, I can't tell you how long we spent going back and forth, both admiring and debating which of the videos were our favorites. Yeah, it is really cool. Um, so basically, again, you're going to hear all about this, but Chris and his team tasked um, another agency with creating a video, actually three separate videos, uh, one for $1,000, one for $10,000, and then the third for $100,000. And then what they're doing is they've released those videos, so you can see the difference for yourself now, but they're also packaging it up and putting it into this massive documentary about behind the scenes. And it's it's just so crazy because this was a huge risk. This was a huge budget. This was um, something that you know they wanted to do. It was very creatively driven. And, you know, there was a huge chance that this might not have generated anything at all. Yeah. And and what I think I admire about the campaign, the approach, I think a lot of us as marketers, we're often sitting there and and debating, you know, what are we going to do? Are we going to take a big risk and go outside of our comfort zone? But too often when we do, our definition of taking a risk is just spending more money or doing what the guys who are bigger than us do. Whereas what the, what Chris's team did here with this with this execution was they went to that far extreme, but they contrasted it to the not taking a risk, to going you know going the more normal approach. And I think that's what makes these videos so intriguing is that you're comparing them to well, what if we just tried to do it in the average way versus what if we went all out on our budget. And I think that's where we're, where everyone who watches these videos, as he hits on, ends up watching just as much of one versus the other. So, because you've got to know. Yeah, the results were really fascinating. Before we spoil it anymore for everybody, Randy, what do you say we go ahead and let Chris talk about it himself? And I think you actually brought him in this time. Hey, 
Hey, Chris, thanks so much for stopping in and chatting with Anna and I. We are really excited for this episode. And, and as I said to you at the beginning, like I love always chatting with you, catching up, hearing about the world of video. But you guys have really done something fun that we can talk about with this you know, 110-1 campaign. I hopefully, hopefully I'm talking about it properly. But we'll, we'll get into that a bit. For everyone listening, though, maybe you can just set up your role at Wistia and maybe the, just quickly the Wistia story. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. And thanks for having me. And, you know, Randy, I always love chatting with you. Um, so I'm the co-founder and CEO of Wistia. We help companies use video better. We've been around for 12 years. So we're not your average tech company based in Cambridge, Massachusetts. We have about 90 people on the team, never raised venture funding. And actually late last year, we did we did raise angel funding. And late last year, we bought we raised some debt to buy out our angel investors and recommitted to running the business for the long term. So definitely different and excited about that. And we have a couple products. The main product, it helps you manage the videos on your site, understand how they're performing, um, integrates them to all your other marketing tools, all that jazz. And we launched Soapbox, which helps you create videos um, last year. And that's a Chrome extension that records your webcam and your screen simultaneously and lets you add transitions between them so you can really quickly make a video that looks really professional. So if it takes you two minutes to record, it's going to take you 30 seconds to edit. And uh, that's been super fun as well. So check that out. And the campaign you're talking about is 11000. That's how I call it. Start with the one. You go the other way. Um, but basically, we worked with uh, Sandwich Video, who are some of the premier video production I would say one of the premier video production companies that does product launch videos specifically. They did the product launch videos for Slack, for Square, for Warby Parker. And they just are incredibly funny, incredibly high production, really on point. And we went to them and worked with them and gave them a budget of $111,000 and asked them to make us ads at three different price points. What would it look like if the budget was $1,000? What would it look like if a budget was $10,000? What would it look like if a budget was $100,000? And we wanted them to make an ad for Soapbox with all those different budgets. So they did that. Uh, we just released the... All right. So let's pause there because yeah, there's so much we can unpack yeah. with this game and how it came to be. But before we go there, I mean, the way you, you teed up your intro was perfect as well because... Dropping a hundred thousand, let alone one hundred eleven thousand dollars, on a, a video series or a single campaign, if you will, when you are a more or less bootstrap company that's you know kicking ass as you guys have. I mean, we we love using Wistia here at Uberflip, um, but but you've done so in a lean way, and I think that's always admirable. And I think that's the interesting part of this whole campaign. It, it's it's a debate, right? Like what? How much money? Do we have to spend on that video? And we go through this all the time here at Uberflip. Anytime we're going to do, whether it's a video or an ebook or or whatnot, it's how much production value needs to go into any asset that we do. And I think there's a lot of different beliefs out there. And I think, you know, Anna, you you probably see this a lot when you're talking to some of the clients at, at Convince and Convert in that. There's almost these different expectations these days with user-generated content that's pushing us a little down market. Yeah. No, I mean, it's a, it's a constant debate, right? And as you, especially as you get into higher budgets, the questions of like, how do you know if you're getting a return become 
very they, they become the prominent the predominant questions, right? So um, it's something that comes up a lot. It's something that is really hard to pin down, and that's actually why that's why we wanted to do the project because we thought, you know, these guys are the best in the business. We're going to see what the best looks like. They were excited about the challenge, actually, because their budgets are usually even bigger than the hundred thousand dollars these days. They were excited about the challenge of like, how, what would it be like for them to do these ads at lower budgets? Like, what would they have to sacrifice, and and how would it would it actually make them more engaging in some cases? And it's been super interesting to see just the response to the ads themselves so far, because. I'm constantly hearing from people who are saying like, this is an amazing project. The $1,000 ad is by far my favorite. Like that's the most authentic. And then I talk to people like, well, the 10,000 is like the funniest. Like that one's so interesting. And the the brand feel you get, the 100 is completely different too. Well, I, I'll tell you, I'll tell you that, I'll tell you on our marketing team, uh, we use Slack, which ironically, I've always loved sandwich videos since I saw the Slack video that they did. But more so specific to Slack, after the campaign was sent out to our team and then shared around by those who weren't on the mailing list, I guess, a vote was put onto the channel to see of the 20 marketers, you know, which version did they like the best? And the the 100,000 got the least votes. I mean, it, it was like, you know, people talked about how polished it was, but the, the ones that it was kind of an even balance between the one and the 10. Yeah. It's kind of wild. And it, you know, when you look at the hundred thousand dollar one, they're kind of creating a hyper reality, you know, like the people, the office, the posters, everything is perfectly done, which is how most television ads are. And so it's interesting. Cause like you can watch, I almost, I think it can change the way you think about, other ads you see on TV or on streaming, obviously, where it's like, wow, that looks like this company must be doing great. That's a really polished thing. They must like, it's like a brand elevation thing, which is good for some people and not for others, actually. And sometimes there's a bigger opportunity in other places. So that is interesting um, that no one chose that as a favorite. Yeah, I'm personally excited for this campaign for a number of reasons. One, I think it's really cool. It's just super creative. It's a fun, different way to look at video. And then two, also, Randy, going back to what you said earlier, um, and Chris, I'm sure you guys encounter this all the time too, but it's it can be really hard to get people to invest in video and give up some of that cash flow. And I'm not sure what it is exactly, you know, whether it's the perception of having so much money go one place um, versus what they could be spending it on another, but it's so exciting to finally see some of these things put to the test and actually show people that you don't have to have $100,000 to create the best video possible. That's not what this is about. It's not always about money. And I think this is a, you know, even just aside from being an incredibly creative campaign, it's a really powerful testimonial to just video in general. Yeah, I, I agree with you completely. And, you know, for us at Wistia, so much of our of our own content that we've made and has been the most successful has been around DIY video. How do you light something properly? How, what's a setup you can get for less than a thousand bucks that's going to help you make something that looks really good? And part of the thing that we were interested to see was like people just, it's so hard to evaluate when this stuff is worth it. What would it be like for us to see a product of our own that was done at that really high budget? Like I was, when I saw the $100,000 thing, I was like blown away in a way just by the, the kind of like the elevation of the brand. But that piece, how you measure that 
is, is so impossibly hard, right? Like how do you know that you are elevating a brand or not? Like where does that show up in your data? It's a really hard thing to like wrap your mind around. And I'm sure there's a ton of people who spend way too much money on content like that. And sometimes people who don't, they don't actually realize that that's what they need is to elevate themselves. And so they, they don't spend the money on the, the bigger production stuff. Yeah, I, I think this part's debatable, though, at the same time. And, and not I, I agree with everything that you just said, but and not to take anything away from this campaign, but part of me started to overanalyze it, which I'm sure a lot of people are doing, especially internally. And, and what I started to go with was, did I appreciate the extra level of polish because I watched the $1,000 video first? Or would I would I have normally watched that and just taken for granted all of that that degree of polish that's in there. So the question to your point is, is, is it needed or is it not? And, you know, we've done some amazing projects on our team. I, I, I wouldn't say that we often get away at a thousand dollars, but in that $10,000 range, uh, sometimes five to seven, we can pull something off, you know, still bringing in some external help, but not, but still relying on our own team where we end up just so happy with it and getting some of the best feedback. I think, yeah, I mean, your point is um, on the money, I think, when you you can see the difference in the $100,000 video because you see the 1000 And I think actually most of the time we don't see the difference. You're not thinking this ad is high production quality. You Normally we think like this ad made me laugh or this ad's boring or like I have a problem that this solves, but so often it's like the high production quality is just assumed. So I do think it emphasizes that, and I and I, but I actually don't know myself. Like, does that make that more effective, or does it make it less effective because you're aware of it? It's it's a it's a great debate. It's like trying on the three thousand dollars suit versus the five hundred dollars suit. Yeah, you know, like <laughs> you know, the three thousand dollars suit is better because you just tried on the five hundred dollars suit. But like, you know, to the plain eye, five hundred dollars suit ain't bad. Totally, which I think puts it within reach of uh, many more people, right? Like, which is exciting. Cool. So there's a lot more we can unpack from this, and and we're going to. We're going to first take a quick break and hear from the sponsors here on the Connex podcast, and then we'll be right back with Chris. Hi, friends. This is Jay Baer from Convince and Convert, reminding you that this show, the Connex Show podcast, is brought to you by Uberflip, the number one content experience platform. Do you ever wonder how content experience affects your marketing results? Well, you can find out in the first ever content experience report, where Uberflip uncovers eight data science-backed insights to boost your content engagement and your conversions. It's a killer report, and you do not want to miss it. Get your free copy right now at uberflip.com slash connex show report. That's uberflip.com slash connex show report. And the show is also brought to you by our team at Convince and Convert Consulting. If you've got a terrific content marketing program, but you want to take it to the very next level, we can help. Convince and Convert works with the world's most iconic brands to increase the effectiveness of their content marketing, social media marketing, digital marketing, and word of mouth marketing. Find us at convinceandconvert.com. Today's podcast is brought to you by CoSchedule. I'm a big fan of the team over at CoSchedule because they are making it possible for us as marketers to live with an all-in-one marketing calendar. It combines project management, email marketing, social promotion, all in one place, which we know is so tricky when our team is not aligned. So to get complete visibility over your entire marketing schedule, keep your sanity and get more done, 
check out CoSchedule. You can go to coschedule.com slash Connex to get your free marketing strategy template, plus a lowdown on how CoSchedule is helping thousands of marketers like you get their sanity back. That's at coschedule.com slash Connex. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. We are here with Chris Savage from Wistia. Now, Chris, before the break, we were talking a lot about the individual videos that you and your team made for the 110 and 100 campaign. But you actually have huge plans to turn all of this, basically the entire process of doing this campaign, concepting it, shooting it into a massive sort of four-part, 100-minute documentary, which I think is fascinating. I think it's amazing, too, that you're able to take this entire process and then document it because it is just so fascinating. Yeah, we're really excited about it. And what we wanted to do was, when we had the opportunity to work with Sandwich and they got excited about this project, you know, we thought to ourselves, you know, this is a big project and we're going to spend $100,000 on one of these ads. Like, how do we... How do we learn from this and how do we document it? And so we sent our team out to document. We documented all the meetings that we had with them and we documented their first couple shoots. And the team came back and they're like, okay, we, we might have thought this is going to be a couple of videos in our learning center or a couple of blog posts. Like, there's a lot more here. There's a lot to learn. There's a there's a lot of trade-offs. It's actually, there's like, there's a bigger story. And so we basically kept documenting the process and have put together this four-part original series that's going to come out later this month, which is really about exploring the, the connection between money and creativity. So a lot of the stuff we've been talking about, and it kind of mirrors the ads so you can see the sandwich creative process, how they went about creating each ad. And then we went and kind of broke that down so you can see like for the $1,000 video, how do you make a video like that? Like, what does that take? How should you be thinking about the lighting and shooting and editing? And and it pieces together so you can kind of really, it's the same format, so you can highlight the difference between each video. And hopefully, if you watch the series, you're way more informed about those types of decisions that one would make. You kind of have a view into how Sandwich works, which was very, very cool, and, and we learned a lot. And we thought it would be just like, it's a different thing. It's a bigger thing. It's a scarier thing. It's a more creative risk. And that got us excited as a company to take to take it on as a challenge. Was it just crazy to be like on the other side of the camera and actually being, you know, so involved in, you know, being actually on screen and, and helping to plan all this? Obviously, you know, you do video things pretty regularly, but how was it actually being sort of on the other side? I mean, it's very different because we come up with an idea and, and then usually once we have a concept and a script locked, locked locked internally, we move really fast. And in this case, there was like a, many revisions, the scripts, um, the shooting took a lot longer. I mean, the 100K shoot, I think there was like 30 people on set the day that it was shot. There's many more moving pieces, totally different equipment and stuff. And even on the, on the post side, once it was completed the number of re revisions that they made, it was mind boggling. And the number of like small changes to the $100,000 video was quite, it was just, it was a totally different level of production. So it was super interesting. We learned a ton from it. And I hope people can get a view into that and kind of appreciate why you would do these, the, you know, think about video at these different budgets and also from a creative standpoint, so differently. So I'm just curious, you know, as, as you hit on that, and this is something we've struggled on in the past when we've gone outside for video help is giving up control, giving up creative control. Uh, you know, when we do the hacky project ourselves, 
you know, all of us are micromanaging. We're coming up with that idea. We know our product inside out. At what stage do you find you have to give up that control when you go to a company like Sam? Yeah, so we we knew we'd be giving up control. And while that was scary, we trusted them. And the weird thing is like, it felt like a risk to do this project. And it felt like another risk to make the original series. And then it felt like a risk to be transparent about how it's performing. So it seems like a lot of big risks that we kind of layered on top. We layered each risk on top of the other ones. And actually in some weird way, that made it easier to do. Because in my mind, I was like, well, if these ads are not good or they don't show up the way they're supposed to, we can probably make content explaining about how that happened. And if we're really thoughtful, we can probably do it and like talk about our own failings and that will be interesting. And if we're transparent about how they perform, then that'll probably also be another angle for us to like learn and share and talk about. And so we almost like added all these things together and that made it easier for each individual part to give up control. That's interesting. And, and just at a high level, how have you evaluated the success of these so far? So yeah, we, we set some internal metrics that were about like the number of for the series, we set some metrics that are about the number of engaged views. So how many people will actually watch this both on our site and other platforms. And obviously the series isn't out yet, so I don't know how we'll do on that. And then for the actual ads themselves, we set some metrics around do they perform in getting people to learn about Soapbox, which is like obviously what they're about. The interesting thing is we shared this stuff on Twitter and that was kind of like... We did that first to kind of see what would happen. And we didn't really know what kind of response we would get. And to be completely candid, I was really blown away by the response. There was like far more interest than I thought there was going to be in just the ads themselves. In hindsight, makes sense. but And that's why we did the project. But it was pretty remarkable. And so we had, I think, over a million impressions of the ads just on Twitter before we sent an email out. And when, when that happened, I was like, this was probably worth it. <laughs> so it, for me, at least, it, it frees us up to take some more risks in, in how we handle everything else. It feels like we've already had more of an impact than we thought we would have. So I, I want to bridge on this idea of risk. But before I do, there's, I, I'll give you a bit of a Wistia plug, even though you're not looking for it. Because one of the things I bet you can tell, because I know how Wistia works, is how far people are making it into these videos. I'm curious which of the, before we jump off these videos, of the 110 and 100, aside from engagement, which ones have, have locked people in the longest? They're almost exactly the same. Really? And actually, they're all almost the exact same number of plays. Wow. I think people see it as one thing. And so they watch them all. And there's so many different things you can look for in each. Like you can look at the scripting, you can look at the visual quality, you can look at the audio quality, you can look at the fact that there are actors in some and in, uh, sandwich employees in others. And like, um, yeah, I w again, we were quite surprised by that. I assumed that would be the most people would watch the thousand and then we'd have a drop off of people who like weren't actually that compelled by it. And maybe like, I don't know, I thought maybe 50 to 60% of people would watch all of them if you watch the first one, but it's more like 95%. Interesting. So I, I, I said I wanted to kind of leverage this idea of risk uh, that you talked about with the videos. And 
there's no question the approach that you've taken growing Wistia is not conventional for a technology company. Uh, the approach that you took, that you wrote about in, in your blog post earlier this year that I read around you know, raising debt financing to buy out early investors and, and commit to this business is not traditional. How did you and your team evaluate that as a risk? Yeah, so that that's a great question. So we're faced with the opportunity to sell the company in 2017. And Brendan and I, you know, there's been many people who have poked around and tried to buy Wistia over the years. We're very fortunate for that. Um, but in this one moment, we actually had three different companies trying to acquire the company. And we're like, huh, maybe that means we should have these conversations. So um, we had some conversations and we were actually also coinciding with like a tough time internally. It was one of the hardest times I've had at Wistia probably the hardest time of just like things were confused. There was a lot of confusion. We didn't have great operating systems in place. Uh, I won't go too far into depth, but let's just say it was not super fun. And we're faced with that decision, should we sell? And you would think not super fun, running into some problems, like might be a good time to sell. But I got advice from someone who had sold their company and he said, you know, no one tells you this, but if you have problems and you sell the company, you still are going to have problems and you're still going to have to solve them. But actually now you're going to be working for somebody else. And so you better believe you're going to solve those problems really fast. <laughs> and he's like, that happened to me. And I, I sold my company. I had the problems. I fixed them really fast. We were operating way better. And he's like, no one ever tells you not to sell. And I'm not going to tell you not to sell, but it's kind of similar. I think to like, if you're marrying the wrong person, people don't tell you that you're marrying the wrong person either. But later, if you do, if things don't work out, they're like, yeah, I know. I never really liked them either. And I think that there's like a funny thing of recognizing what you're giving up when you're selling a company. And so we realized and got advice. Unfortunately, I think we just like took some real time with it that if we sold the company, we'd be giving up a platform to try different things. And we built one product. We could build other products. We could build a bigger brand. We've been doing this a long time. We love what we do. And so we decided we're not going to sell. We're going to recommit to fixing those things. We're going to recommit to building the business our way. And if it doesn't go well, then that's okay. At least we bet on ourselves. But once we made that decision, we we're misaligned with our angel investors who did probably want us to sell because they invested a long time ago. And you know, they invested, we were making $1,000 a month in revenue. And I'm very thankful to them, but they needed some kind of return. And then actually, we'd also been given employees options, stock options. And if we're not going to sell, we have to do right by the employees too. So we did a bunch of research, looked at all the different options that were out there. We realized that debt could be a way to fund this because we'd have we'd get the cash today and we could buy back shares from investors. We could let employees sell, sell their options if they wanted to. And then Brendan and I would be taking on the risk that we could keep the company growing and we could grow a lot more profitable than we had been. And that would allow us to pay off the debt. And so the, the risk was like, do we think we understand the fundamentals of the business and that we can keep growing? And um, will, we, will the team leave? You know, will they not want to be here without stock options? And if, we, if things go sour, then we'll have to do something about that debt. We'll have to sell the company later or raise money to equity to take out the debt. We'll have to do something like that. But we believed that we could do it. And so, and we actually believed that the focus and the constraint of profitability would force us to be more creative and to go faster. Fortunately, so far, that's worked. <laughs> um, so you you actually wrote an entire article about sort of how much you took on. Are, are you 
Are you willing to sort of yeah. chat about that piece? Yeah, we took $17.3 million in debt. Uh, <laughs> I like how the, the point three is in there. Like it, as if That's important. That's 300000 <laughs> Yeah, no, it is. Yeah. I know I would be counting every penny too. I, I literally can't even quantify how much that is like in my brain. It's like when I think about the universe and my head just explodes. It was pretty funny the day it went into our bank account. I was like, look at our bank account. It's $17 million. Then we paid it out. It's like, it's gone. <laughs> oh my God. I seriously, I mean, hats off to you guys because seriously, you know, like Randy mentioned, you know, taking big risks and even just starting with that massive risk, um, you were able to do amazing things like the 110 and 100 campaign. And I'm really excited personally to see everything else that you all do at Wistia and especially continuing this path of risk taking and making just really cool stuff. Just in case, you know, I know that the, the documentary isn't out yet, but when it is available, where should people go to actually view it and see the behind the scenes and see all these cool risks that you guys are taking? Um, and can they sign up for alerts when it comes out? Yep. So if you go to Wistia.com and you go to the learn section of the site, you can go see, you can sign up now. You can watch the trailer, which is like two minutes long, gives you a good sense of what you're signing up for. And if you do that, you will, will drop an email when it all comes out. We're going to be, it's going to be coming out later this month in a few different forms. There'll be a live broadcast that you can watch of all of the stuff at once. You'll obviously be able to watch on demand and it'll be on Wistia and a few other places too, which is exciting. So um, I would say if you are interested, go to wits.com slash learn and sign up for um, when it comes out. Fantastic. Chris, thank you so much for talking to us about the professional side of your life. We're going to go ahead and have you stick around for just a few moments to talk about the personal side. So stick with us and we'll be right back. All right. So Chris, as we mentioned before, we got to know the professional side of you. We got to talk about all these cool campaigns, this amazing risk you're taking on. Um, let's talk about some personal questions. So you had talked to us a little bit about uh, the fact that you love disaster movies, which I think is interesting because we don't often hear people talk about their love of disaster movies. <laughs> so, and not in a negative way. I just think, you know, people like, you know, it's, it's not something, it's not a genre that gets a ton of love, it seems. So um, two question, two part question for you. What is your absolute favorite all time disaster movie? And then what is your favorite like best worst disaster movie? You know, like the movies that are really terrible, but you just you have to love. Great question. So I think my favorite it's it's really hard to pick a favorite disaster movie, but I'm going to go with San Andreas. Really? <laughs> Ooh. Okay, that one's pretty recent. It's pretty recent. The Rock. Yeah, it's definitely worth a watch. I mean, you, is it, isn't that Dwayne Johnson? Oh, yes. Dwayne The Rock Johnson, yeah. If you have Dwayne The Rock Johnson in a disaster movie, you know you're doing well. I feel like he is taking over that genre. Like, he's kind of owning it. You got Skyscraper that just came out. Um, not as good. But, um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I have always loved disaster movies. I love them because they're so, I mean, so outrageous you kind of know what you're getting. And because you kind of know what you're getting, there's, they're, they're all trying to push each other um, to extremes. Like San Andreas is just absolutely outrageous, everything that happens in it. Um, and I, it's, I, I mean, I guess it's escapism, but I really enjoy... I enjoy knowing that I'm going to see a good disaster flick. Um, 2012 is another classic. Day After Tomorrow is another classic. I can't believe you haven't said Armageddon. Armageddon is nuts, huh? Armageddon is a classic, yes. You know, kind of like defines the genre. 
And it, I did like when Armageddon was out, and that was the same time that, uh, if you remember, Deep Impact also came out. And it was like the two different asteroid movies. And then there's the uh, Volcano and Dante's Peak that came out within like a month of each other too. Like there's like a weird thing where some studio gets wind that there's another specific type of disaster movie coming. They're like, oh my God, we better do that too. Got to give people the disaster. It's it's kind of the same with, uh, I can't remember which I'm thinking of Netflix that, that felt like Westworld. Uh, yes, I know what you're talking about. Like HBO and Netflix were like, okay, I've got my spin on robots taking over the world. It's like it's like the con- it's like what's happening in the culture at the moment, and everyone's trying to figure out what's the next thing that people want for their like escapism disaster movie, and it's like, oh, it's asteroids. That's what it is. Or I mean, you know, there was like the this is not disaster, but all the going to space stuff with like interstellar and gravity and all happening at the same time. It's like it just it's funny it happens in waves like that. So so the the question here really is. Who is going to try and take a spin on a 110, 100? Like, what are the three different approaches that people are like, the Wistia team nailed it. We need our version. And, and we'll have to all, uh, keep an eye out for that. But, uh, you know, until until that time, you know, you guys can reign with the box office hit. I think you guys, uh, you know, knocked it out of the park. Uh, get your Oscar, Emmy, whatever it is that they're going to give for these but uh, congrats, Chris, and uh, you know, kudos to to everyone at, at Wistia. Again, just a uh, you know, quick uh, call to action for everyone to go to wistia.com/learn uh, to to find these videos, enjoy them. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you know, continue to subscribe and find other episodes that we've had. You know, together, myself and Anna enjoy you know connecting with you and appreciate everyone taking time out of their days to listen to these conversations with bright marketers like Chris. Until next time, this has been the Conex Podcast. This is Jay Bear, and thanks for listening to the Content Experience Show. Please leave a review and subscribe on iTunes or on your favorite podcast listening app. Go to contentexperienceshow.com for a complete show archive and greatest hits. That's contentexperienceshow.com. The Content Experience Show is sponsored by Convince and Convert Consulting and by Uberflip. It's produced by my team and I at Convince and Convert. If you're interested in being a guest or a sponsor on the show, just go to convinceandconvert.com.